The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A happy Wednesday, everybody. You're watching Scorebox with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. The S&P and Dow close in the red after the Labor Day long weekend, <clears throat> with recovery concerns growing. Meanwhile, big tech stocks push the Nasdaq to another record high. SoftBank shares actually surging for a second day in Japan after the company links up with Deutsche Telekom. With the CEO of SoftBank Group International telling CNBC the deal opens new doors. As part of this agreement, our portfolio companies are going to have access to basically grow within the European market, which is something great. And German Chancellor Angela Merkel implores voters to back Armin Laschet in this month's election as candidates make their pitch for the premiership with her conservatives lagging in the polls. A bumpy ride for Bitcoin, El Salvador's launch of the crypto as an official currency it gets off to a rocky start amid protests and tech-teething trouble. The U.S. was back in action on the uh, long weekend uh, Labor Day markets had been a little bit choppy going into that long weekend. Don't forget we had that non-fund payrolls report that crossed in the Friday trade. We didn't get the typical trade that you would have expected where we had a, a weak print. The market pushed out uh, plans for a taper or some of the expectations of the marketplace, which should have been a risk on asset type of play. But it didn't happen Friday session. And that choppiness actually continuing into the trade when it reopened for trade yesterday, you could see. The Dow are notching up some more losses. The fifth negative session in six. Uh, 3M, one of the big moves to the downside. And Microsoft behind the red that you were seeing on the S&P. They're one of the bigger contributors on that market, about a third of a percent down. So smaller percentage losses on the S&P. But still, this fade, uh, the lack of risk appetite at the market is quite notable at this stage, despite a lot of dovish commentary still coming through from the Fed. Uh, the Nasdaq, the exception. And this was, again, a fresh record for the tech heavy index, the 36th that it's inked of 2021. So, again, more of a push to the upside. But it did coincide with an announcement that crossed Apple saying would hold a special event on the 14th of September next week. Most industry watchers anticipating this could be around the new iPhone lineup, which is seen as a big earnings contributor. And of course, uh, very important for some of the, the forecasts for the next quarter. So that was a, a big catalyst for the Nasdaq as you look at some of the green. So a fairly sizable stock and a move to the upside for Apple. A quick look at those big tech names and you can see what was in play. Apple stock, as you can see, 1.5% pop in that name. Patch of red for Microsoft, 3.7% higher for Netflix. So streaming services still doing well at this point. Uh, elsewhere to the social media companies, Facebook outperforming Twitter, Alphabet, Amazon, all trading stronger. And you can see Tesla, as we talk about more momentum names in the technology space, that was a, a decent gain or two, 2.6% higher. And let's get into the Bitcoin news. We did see a crash materialize in the price, and this has been fairly stunning. Uh, we crashed from what the 52,000 mark to 49,000. And uh, you can see this morning, 46 is, is where we're trading. So uh, there's been uh, some fairly large gyrations in the trade. And uh, this was on a day that we're expecting 
expected there might be some upward push. There have been reports on social media that uh, some of the big meme traders have been anticipating buying uh, on calls that uh, they wanted to support the rollout of Bitcoin in El Salvador. That did not happen. But just a reminder of how wide some of the forecasts are as to where we go from here. Some are saying 100,000 before the end of the year. Others are saying this is a dead cat bounce and effectively you could be around 20,000 by the end of the year. So very wide uh, elements around the price trades and forecasts for Bitcoin at this stage. Let me take you to what we're seeing on oil. Don't forget we saw the Saudi price drops for Asian customers in the contract earlier in the week. That was a negative catalyst for the oil trade. We are flat on Brent this morning, 71.68. Uh, a little bit higher on WTI and worth noting gold as we've seen a little bit of a nudge high in some of those yield stateside. And this has been a little bit of a headwind for gold in the trade yesterday. Morning session, though, it's catched a bit of a bid, two tenths of a percent, but still perched below $1,800. The Asian markets, uh, let's just switch across to the region. Patchy all day, as you can see, Japan uh, stocks still gaining and nicely through that 30,000 point mark. <laughs> it's funny how far you can carry a market on hopes of fiscal stimulus. The Hong Kong market trades lower. Shanghai just more modestly high, only about two points eked out at this stage in Australia, four tens down. So it is a choppy old trade they're watching across those markets, Steph. Morning, how are you? Morning. Well, Every you. time I think about Bitcoin, I try and think if I can say something new that everybody else hasn't said a hundred times before. And the right. answer is clearly no. <laughs> but the only thing I will say, which is moderately fresher than a lot of the rhetoric I hear is, are the people who are advocates of it stupid? In a very sensible way, actually. I, I, obviously, I'm being glib and I'm saying something punchy just to catch someone's attention. But the point I'm trying to make is what is a measure of success for Bitcoin? Now, the advocates will say, oh, well, measure of success if I, my holding goes from 30,000 to 50,000. My holding goes from 50,000 to 100,000. It's, it's, if Bitcoin carries on going up, this is the measure of success. Well, That's not the case, is it? A measure of success is if it gets adopted globally. A measure of success is if it can be used as a store of value, if it can be used as a means of exchange, if it can be used as, it says on the tin, some form of cryptocurrency. Surely, stability is the name of the game to success for Bitcoin. If Bitcoin is to be successful, the stunning volatility we have seen this year with ranges from what, 10,000 to 100,000, and you there mm-hmm. were talking about it, and, and then and even, <laughs> even Scott Minard, when we interviewed him earlier this year, said, well, it could be 30,000, 20,000, 15,000, 10,000 at the bottom. He didn't have a clue, and he's been in the markets for 30, 40 years. You know? okay. So surely those advocates of Bitcoin have got to change their rhetoric a little bit and say, actually, stability somewhere, whether it's at 46,000, 60,000, wherever it may well be. Surely stability is a measure of success rather than this thing going up ad infinitum. Yeah, it's a good point. But uh, something that jumped out to me, a slightly different point to make, was that uh, there were reports in El Salvador from uh, those consumers that had gone out there. Can any of us point to El Salvador on the map? <laughs> I think we'd struggle. But the, but the point is that they were going into major brands, into stores like McDonald's and into Starbucks, and they were thinking they'd get turned away. But they didn't. They could actually transact with Bitcoin. And if you think about the lesson that that has for some of these global brands, they're having this experiment play out in El Salvador. It's a small market anyway, and they get to see how the cryptocurrency works. And if you think about global adoption eventually, this is a test case type of scenario. So I think that is one positive catalyst if you're talking about global adoption and, you know, point to a small market. I think the the El Salvadorian uh, government had bolstered its stake. A very small stake, though, we're still talking about. Bought its first 200 bitcoins yesterday uh, ahead of the Bitcoin law. And we're effectively now talking about a holding that is worth roughly 25 million 
dollars at the current exchange rate, which is very small when you're talking about the ownership of currencies. Yeah, right. I know James F is waiting. He'll have to wait a second. Though. James is a good man. Look, I've just Googled. Sorry, I've used the search engine. It may well have been Google, may have been Bing. I don't know. Is Bing still a thing? Um, it's actually uh, becoming more of a thing, apparently. All right, okay. So what is the profit margin on a Big Mac? Big Mac is the eponymous, well, most well-known McDonald's product, okay? It's the most popular. It's the Big Mac oh, index. Know. It's I the Big Mac. Me. You know I don't know. What do test. I know? Um, we assume a $4 Big Mac is about, um, it, the, basically, the profitability for uh, Big Mac. The raw materials costs a buck. Uh, two pound is the restaurant overhead, uh, and roughly one dollar is corporate profit. So we're talking twenty to twenty-five percent profitability on a patty, on a mm. Big Mac. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If the aforementioned medium of sale moves by ten percent against McDonald's during this transaction, whichever way it may well be, that means their profit margin has gone down from nineteen point nine percent or twenty-five percent, depending on how you look at it, uh, down by around about ten percent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Is McDonald's happy to use this as a media exchange when all their other fixed costs, you think about the cost of meat, the cost of transportation, the cost of employees, the cost of their sites, the cost of their energy, you name it, their uh, promotions. There are a, a thousand other costs out there for McDonald's which are finitely managed, yeah? Uh, and they're not going to move 10% in a whisper like that as well. well is McDonald's going to be happy taking a medium quick. of exchange, just, just one second, right. taking a medium of exchange, which is that volatile on a daily basis? Because that assumes prices don't change. And don't forget, you've got a lot of flexible ways to, to reprice products. I mean, we're talking about a lot of online uh, tools now instead of physical menus, for instance, as you talk about restaurants. So will prices fluctuate? I think that's one of the concerns that consumers had on the ground, which is why you saw some protests yesterday. Price, maybe you have a big Exactly, that's right. Maybe day. there's two on the board. Well, that's sensible, isn't it? If something's totally convertible into dollar on a, an immediate basis as well, why would you bother? Why don't you just go straight for the dollar rather than having... And this is what I said to, dare I say, a baroness of the realm when she was trying to tell me a couple of years ago that, with, that she was selling properties in Dubai and we could pay for them in Bitcoin. Bitcoin may be the most successful medium of exchange ever in the next 30 years or so. But while it's this volatile and you've got fixed costs from putting a bill together, fixed costs with your workers, whatever, how on earth are you supposed to sell products in something that's so volatile when you don't know what your profit's going to be? Yeah, can I just add the, the uh, trading you may see around this type of story, though? Because don't forget, when it comes to the likes of El Salvador, they saw the selling, the crash that happened yesterday as a buying opportunity. And if you're out there and you're transacting in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, then perhaps you do need to be buying some of the dips more aggressively. So that'll be interesting to watch whether you see more support come into the trade uh, on the back of uh, this legal tender. Is that good? Is he good to go? Tell you what, we'll do the read for Friday's week of non-palm payrolls. Pay Keep that read there. Mr. Rathy, James Rathy's joining us now. You're a smart bloke, senior investment manager, Aberdeen Standard Investments. You're here to talk about fixed income. What do you think about Bitcoin? <laughs> Morning, Steve. I was enjoying that. Um, I, when you go through the various justifications for Bitcoin, in, and, and let's be honest, they've evolved over time. People seem to kind of ignore the idea of a use case now. It, it has become you know, a lifeboat against fiat currency without really any desire, appreciation or belief that it, it will go go on to be widespread, uh, you know, widely used actually as a, as a means of exchange, which I find very strange indeed. But to me, there are a couple of killer arguments that, that make me not believe that this is the future. Um, not least the fact that Bitcoin <clears throat> takes so unbelievably long to process a transaction now that practically speaking, it can't be used for day-to-day -day use. 
that's not possible and that's why we've seen forks within the bitcoin community numerous forks within the bitcoin community and that's why we see other cryptocurrencies which try to sell themselves as being more um, appropriate shall we say for day-to-day -day use and therein lies the rub the whole point about bitcoin was that there was a limited supply there can only ever be 21 million bitcoins but nobody thought to to counter that with yes but there can be an infinite supply of alternative cryptocurrencies so to me that it doesn't even satisfy its own criteria for why it should have value which is to say that there is a limited supply of something which is in desire because actually there isn't a limited supply there's an infinite supply because people are just creating uh, cryptocurrencies right left and sideways which are popping up all over the show and none of them has a use case so each of them is is equally a leap of faith and you could argue that yes well there will emerge one winner and the network effects will make that winner have all the value of all the cryptocurrencies but probably going to take quite a while to get there knowing which that winner will be will be very difficult if you can't argue that there is a solid use case so i'm out yeah we better leave it there for a moment i probably had a, so much vitriol piled upon me on social media for my last tirade that's all right though because they don't they can't get on here unless i tell them they can get on here uh, right okay or the production team sneak one in which they do occasionally uh, james athy right you were here to book to talk about fixed income treasuries markets tapering what have you so two questions one was the was the payroll that bad on friday i actually saw a couple of good things well i say positive things in it if you're looking for wage inflation uh, and indeed the unemployment rate was it really that bad why are yields rallying and the underlying selling off and does that mean tapering is gone there you go i've got three questions in one Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, was it that bad in normal times? If you get two hundred fifty thousand jobs, uh, you know, added in a, in a given month, obviously that's not bad. It was well below expectations. Clearly, there was some difference between the household survey and the establishment survey because the unemployment uh, component looked a lot stronger than would have been suggested by by headlines. Payrolls growth. The household survey is a smaller sample set, so it should be less reliable. <laughs> and then, as you say, there was the average hourly earnings, which looked pretty strong. I would argue that there's still massive composition effects in average hourly earnings. I don't really think it's a particularly useful series when you're trying to derive these sort of economic theory signals from it, which is to say, oh, look, this is evidence of tight labour markets and therefore upward wage pressure. That needs to be like for like. So that needs to be, you know, what did a waiter get paid last year? What does a waiter get paid this year? Average hourly earnings is not that. It's the entire sort of earnings of the labour force divided by the number of hours worked. Therefore, if everybody who loses their job is minimum wage earner, the average will get skewed higher. So I don't see that as a as a particularly useful signal. Was it that week? No. Will it really shift the needle for the Fed? No, I don't think so. Uh, Treasury market reaction in the aftermath was difficult to, to comprehend. I'm going to be somewhat cynical and say, the market's just seeing what it wants to see. So it's desperately trying to shoehorn everything into a Goldilocks framework, a Goldilocks narrative. And for the market at the moment, Goldilocks is <clears throat> a steeper treasury curve, higher treasury yields, a weaker US dollar and, you know, a party time in equities. James, can I just get into that yield? We continue just to inch a little bit higher uh, basis point here, basis point there, and now at 1.36% of that US 10-year. Where do you think we climb to in coming months? I don't think we're going to get too far, to be honest. I, I genuinely, I was always sceptical of the, the massively bearish argument. You know, Q1, we saw, saw some quite dramatic moves. And it, it seems now, looking back through the data and, and the timing of those moves, that maybe there was a, a helping hand from some, some allocation shifts happening in Japan. And once we got past Japanese New Year, uh, that seems to have turned around and, and yields have been falling since. But what I see is that we've had 
a period of 18 months of unprecedented economic volatility, unprecedented policy responses to that volatility. Underneath all of that, we're not just the same unhealthy and imbalanced global economy we were at the end of 2019. It's even worse because there's even more debt which needs to be serviced. That's a pretty um, intense force keeping yields uh, from rising to what might look even remotely normal given the prevailing economic situation. But let's not kid ourselves. Yields haven't looked appropriate for the economic situation for years and years and years and years. And why would they? The central bank has been hoovering them up with abandon uh, and without due regard for, for some of the, you know, the, the negative effects of that policy. So yields are, are capped largely because central banks are buying them everywhere. I think more recently, though, we're starting to see that you know, we've not crossed any Rubicons whatsoever. We're, we're still in a pretty unhealthy place. The economy still doesn't really generate growth unless policymakers are pushing it. And so as soon as policymakers step aside, which they're starting to do now, uh, we quite quickly find ourselves back at a not particularly healthy looking place. James, can we just talk about the, the course from here? Because there was a real rush to try and open up in some parts in the world, from the US to the UK on the back of vaccines. But then the Delta variant has quickly swept around. And even in the United States now, uh, consideration of fresh measures trying to, to stem the, the virus, it's really not playing out how many thought a couple of months ago, where a lot of the activity is starting to drop off and even return to the office is pushed out by some managers what do you make of where we travel from here over the next couple of months based on this virus and, and whether, in fact, the doves might have it on the growth scenario? Yeah, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Each country is is slightly different in terms of their attitude towards and, and approach towards and policies towards the virus. And even, you know, a country as large as the US, you obviously very lo see very localised policy responses. So it's difficult to be too global about it. I think what I would say is that the zero COVID strategy is increasingly looking, as it always was, to be honest, is increasingly looking completely untenable. It's all very well and good to be able to uh, to react quickly and be draconian in lockdowns in a very localised fashion. But unless you close your international borders completely, it, this, there's still always going to be a weak link in that chain. And, and that's kind of what we've been seeing out there in Asia. So I think that that narrative is moving on. You're seeing it in Australia, but even there you've got arguments between low virus states like Queensland and Western Australia and the federal government and the states where virus has spread more, more rapidly. So I think we're going to ebb and flow and policy is not really going to uh, have any sort of magic bullet. But, uh, but ultimately, the end game for me is that the virus now is out there. It's going to be one of those uh, things that we just have to deal with in the same way that we deal with, you know, influenza, for example. Uh, James, um, what's the next trade our viewers should be putting on as a no-brainer? It's difficult to, to call no-brainers, isn't it, Steve, because everything's just ridiculously distorted and expensive. You know, I like, I like yield curve flatness in the US. I think that captures so much of the potential kind of probability distribution going forward. My base case is that economic data is going to, disappoint and actually I think disappoint fairly significantly against what have been ridiculously lofty expectations you know even um, taking account of some of the downward for uh, forecast changes we've seen in, in recent days and weeks from the street um, so my base case is that that's a bull flattener because I think risk markets are certainly not priced for that um, if I'm wrong and the economy is going to do okay and if consensus forecasts are achieved or even growth is above consensus I don't see the Fed is going to be able to sit idly by just given that the inflation backdrop. So in that case, I expect you know five years to underperform the curve to bear flatten. So that's that's quite a lot of 
of the probability distribution for me and, and i think the curve will flatten in both of those so i like curve flatteners i think the dollar's the same i think both ends of the dollar smile are in play here and they're fat the center of the dollar smile for me is only a stable equilibrium when everyone's growing but the rest of the world is outperforming the us that means europe em china I don't see that happening at all. I think Europe is its usual sclerotic self. I think China's slowdown is going to be uh, much more tricky than the markets are currently expecting and pricing. And I think EM is still mired in all sorts of trouble. So I, the, the centre of the dollar smile for me is tiny. The wings are fat. So I like the dollar for that reason as well. And James, thank you very much for joining us this morning to start off the show and talk about markets. Uh, James Athey, Senior Investment Manager, Aberdeen Standard Investments. And just a reminder, analysts at Goldman Sachs have cut their outlook for U.S. economic growth this year amid concerns over the Delta variant. For more, you can head to our premium service, CNBC Pro. And on a programming note, our colleague over in Asia, Mandy Jury, will be hosting a special CNBC Pro talk session with Hugh Young, chairman of Aberdeen Standard Investment Asia. You can catch that conversation at 8.30 CET, also only on CNBC Pro. We've got some news crossing from Sanofi this morning. This is a transaction that uh, the company is announcing. The French drug maker agreeing to buy the U.S. farmers biopharmaceutical company Cadman Holdings in a $1.9 billion deal. Uh, this is a company that develops uh, transformative therapies for immune disorders, fibrotic diseases and cancer. So uh, Sanofi says it's offered $950 per share in cash. Uh, and that uh, represents that $1.9 billion that I've mentioned. So far where we're at, uh, the Snopping Cabin Boards of Directors have unanimously approved the transaction and uh, it's expected to be modestly dilutive to Snopping's EPS in 2022. I, um, as you know, I had a, a, a chat with um, Bruno Le Maire the weekend yes, and he is a very effective um, speaker. Mm-hmm. Now, one can dissect the French policies in many ways. One can dissect all kinds of things. But he's a very effective speaker. And do you know what? There was something he said, which which I haven't brought to air um, because I've got really excited about this superpower um, argument from Bruno Le Maire, which took away my breath, really, about what he and Gensoni are talking about. But what he said to, in, a, in, a, in a closed-door panel, but then reiterated a later date at the press conference, when I, 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 I touched upon this with him, he said, France has failed. We were one of the first countries in the 60s to identify messenger RNA. And so, you know, brilliant science in the 60s and 70s, what have you. But we have failed to get a vaccine out there as well. And, he, and I thought it was brilliantly honest of him to say, Mayor Culp, we have failed, yeah? And he said three good reasons why we failed. He said we failed because we didn't um, have the right attitude to risk, mm-hmm. which I thought was really extraordinary comparing how we've always looked at US corporate business models or business models directed by the state compared with Europe as well. He said, well, our attitude to risk was wrong. He said, we didn't have the right financing in place as well. We don't chuck enough money at this situation as well. Uh, And the third point is we have a strange attitude sometimes for startup biotech in order to go to big pharma as well. So we've got to sort that relationship. And I thought that was brilliantly honest from Bruno Le Maire about why France has failed to lead the race on vaccines, given the fact that they've had the scientific expertise going back decades. It does not surprise me. And if you look back over the course of time, there are articles, stories on uh, this new type of uh, technology for vaccines. Mm. But did anybody actually read that story back then? <laughs> no, they didn't. Vaccines were not uh, a hot topic in the pharma space. I mean, cancer treatments, that a, was a, a red hot area for the markets and, you know, revolutionising the way funding took place in the industry to the point private equity came in. You had to very much 
back yourself in. And if you had this type of technology and you're bringing it to market and you're trying to push it into Other vaccines. Did it. But you know, Moderna has done it. Um, uh, BioNTech has done it. Um, Cambridge University, a big pardon, Oxford University. Uh, Imperial working on something as well. The US with Pfizer. So lots of countries and lots of companies were backing these technologies. And that's why when they had the DNA uh, of this virus from the Chinese, they were able to move at breakneck speed. Well, that's the point about having underlying funding for an area, even if it's and not a hot area in the yeah. particular sector. That I, I just I was thought it was wonderfully candid from him. And yeah. I, I, I kind of liked I liked the cut of his jib on that point. Let's uh, leave it there. Coming up on the show, SoftBank trades higher a day after broadening its European presence by increasing its stake in Deutsche Telekom. We'll hear from the group's international CEO right after the break. Some people say the podcast is the best bit of the show. It's abridged, it's to the point. I, I-, I say it's okay. And uh, if you want to hear the podcast, it's pretty good. It's supposed to be about economic recovery and Fed taper talk. It turned out to be a rant on Bitcoin as well. That's the Squawkbox pod- podcast, uh, bringing you lots of news and analysis as well, apparently. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Uh, SoftBank shares have continued to perform strongly today after yesterday's announcement of a $7 billion share swap deal with Deutsche Telekom. I've got to say it quickly because I'm late. Uh, SoftBank will receive cash and a 4.5% stake in the German telco giant, whilst Deutsche Telekom will raise its stake in T-Mobile US to 48%. There's a lot to unpack in this. We'll do it later because I've run out of time. Uh, our US colleague spoke to Marcello Clore, uh, the CEO of, uh, of the whole SoftBank group and the CEO of its international operations. He said that the deal with the Deutsche Telekom will tie well with SoftBank's other European investments. When you look at Deutsche Telekom combined customers, they have over 240 million customers. And as part of this agreement, our portfolio companies are going to have access to basically grow within the European market, which is something great and something we're looking forward as we've learned that what we've done in Japan, that telcos have a unique way of powering or digital companies so we can gain higher market share at the same time, be able to have lower customer acquisitions costs. So first and foremost, we're really proud of the partnership we have struck with the Dutch Telecom. It's great, and, and now we got to get to work. And we're already talking to three companies, right? One that you know, Revolut, the other one, Tier, which is a micromobility company, and third, Go Student, which is the leading edtech platform in Europe. And they're going to start working immediately with Dutch Telecom, and I'm sure you're going to see incredible growth from those companies. Chinese property group Evergrande has been downgraded to a double C credit rating by Fitch today, following a similar move by Moody's yesterday. The ratings agency said, quote, a default of some kind appears probable, sending jitters across the real estate debt market in China. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.